As we continue to worship this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, or you can find the passage that we're going to read this morning, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, on the insert in your bulletin. Next week, we're going to be starting a new series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians that I'm very excited about. But for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the stories that immediately follow the Christmas story in Luke's gospel. And so we've seen the ceremonies at Jesus, uh, with Jesus at the temple as a baby and, and then Jesus as a young boy of 12 years old at the temple when his parents returned to find him there. And we've been saying in this series that these stories that immediately follow the Christmas story, they really pull back the veil on Jesus' identity and show us who he is and what he came to do. And we've been able to apply that to our day-to-day lives in some very concrete ways. And this morning, we're going to wrap up this very short series that we've been doing after Christmas um, with this scene where John the Baptist is preparing the crowds and preparing us for the ministry of Jesus. So let's read together God's holy and inerrant word, Mark, or Luke chapter 3, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up 
in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever and ever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Father, we rightly come before you to ask for your help that your word would be applied to our lives, that under your word we would be forever changed. Father, we come with this request because when we look into your word, we see that of all things we should have supreme confidence in the hearing of your voice. For the very first page of your word tells us that in the very beginning when there was nothing, you opened your mouth and you spoke. By the very power of your voice, you called everything into existence. Your voice thundered from on high at Mount Sinai to your people and spoke of grace and law. When your son walked to this earth, it was by the power of his voice that the lame were made to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. It was he who spoke into death itself into the tombs and said, Arise, and the dead came to life. Father, as we have gathered together today, we We all come through these doors and sit in these pews together, but the truth is we're all facing different things in this life. And some of us find ourselves heavily burdened, anxious in need of comfort, in need of encouragement, in need of just a word, a sentence to help us make it through the next week. Others of us come with a great many questions and doubts. Some come struggling hard in this life, struggling hard with themselves, wondering if this good news of Jesus dying for sinners can be true for them. Others just see this great distance between what they claim to be and what they actually are, wondering if mercy is still available for them. Father, we come from all different places this morning. And we pray this morning that you would help us to see that though the symptoms of the fall look different in each of our lives, that we're not unique. We're really all the same. Because we all need the same thing. We need to be reminded. We need to hear again and again, that we are far more broken than we know. Far more fallen, far more twisted, far more corrupt than we could even imagine about ourselves. And so we all desperately need the same thing. We need the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're all the same, far more broken than we know, we need to know that because of Him, We are far more loved and far more secure, far more approved of, far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. God, we ask that you would help us to see that good news today, that we would see it 
and find ourselves set free in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so all this discussion, right, in the first couple of chapters of Luke about this special baby named Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And and what you have to realize as you're reading through this story about 18 years have passed between, uh, between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So this big gap of time, right? And now this man named John the Baptist, he's on the scene and he's getting ready, getting people ready to deal with Jesus. And, and that's really the main point that I want to drive home this morning, or maybe even the main question that I want us to answer this morning. How do, you, how do we go about dealing with this person Jesus. You know, most of us have experienced a a friend wanting to introduce us to someone we haven't met before, right? Haven't met previously. And maybe that friend friend of ours says, I can't wait for you to meet so-and-so at the party tonight or at the dinner that we're going to have. And and sometimes that's all that's said. It's just left there. But depending on who that person is, that statement might be followed up with a little warning or a little heads up. You know what I mean? Like, I can't wait for you to meet so-and-so. Just don't get him started on politics or the government. It's going to be a long, long night if you start that, that topic of conversation. Or don't get her started about her kid's school or, or the church or something like that. Or don't get him started about Ole Miss football. That's a, that's a big one. Um, I'm just kidding. Ole Miss people are sensitive about that. But um, Now, what's going on when we do that? Because it really is very, very natural. Uh, to us. I do it all the time when I'm introducing people, and I'm going to continue to do it, because all we're really doing is we're very simply communicating because of who this person is. Here are some tips. Here are some pointers on how to navigate this relationship. It may not be my best illustration ever, but that's how I think we need to go about getting into this passage and about getting at its main point, because John the Baptist is telling the crowds and us how to deal with Jesus, how to navigate this relationship with this totally unique person, Jesus Christ. And we're not going to hit every detail in this passage this morning, but whether you're a Christian or you know you're not a Christian, or or maybe you're seeking or maybe you're totally convinced, or, or maybe you're skeptical or maybe you're believing, wherever you are, John is telling us that the way to deal with Jesus is to do four things. You've got to prepare for him. You've got to turn to him. You've got to follow Him, and you've got to rest in Him. So first, we deal with Jesus by preparing for Him. Because, and here's what I'm saying in this first point. Because Jesus is the King, because He is the King, that means that all the other kings in your life need to be dethroned. Because He is the King, every obstacle to His ultimate kingship in your life has to be removed in order to prepare for him. Let me explain this. John, right, he's in the wilderness preaching a baptism for forgiveness of sins. And Luke, the author of this story, describes the ministry of John by quoting from this prophet Isaiah, verses 4 through 6. Listen to him again. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Now, the imagery of, of the prophecy, it really comes from the ancient world. Because you see, when a king or an emperor wanted to go visit a city in his 
kingdom or in his empire, he would send people ahead, right? He would send heralds to go before him and announce his coming arrival, prepare the people. But workers were also sent ahead of the kings and the emperors, and they were sent ahead to build roads for the king to travel on. They were sent ahead so that he, they could prepare a road leading into the city he was going to visit, so that he could make a grand entrance, so that the citizens of the city could look out and see him coming from a distance. And the obstacles needed to be removed, and, and, and the turns needed to be straightened out, and the ditches and the ruts needed to be filled in to prepare the way for the coming of the king. You know, when Isaiah wrote this, he was thinking about a day when not just any king would come, but the king of kings would come. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the day when God himself, the ultimate king, would come. And John takes this quote, and he says, that day is today. Get ready. Jesus is coming. He's none other than the Lord Himself, the King of kings. Make a road for Him. Level out the ditches and the ruts. Remove the boulders and the obstacles in His way. Straighten out the crooked roads. Some friends of mine graciously um, invite me and take me hunting with them on their property in Louisiana every year. It's an annual trip I take down there. And, and like a lot of hunters, uh, we use things like four-wheelers and different ATVs and stuff to, to make our way through the woods. It's like 3,000 acres. So we, we travel through the woods on these, these little four-wheelers, right? And we've been doing this for years and years together. And over time, these four-wheelers, they've cut some very well-defined paths through the woods and through the brush, right? But all these paths, they, they, they're crooked and they're full of ups and downs and they twist and they turn through the woods. And I think you probably know why, because all we're, we're on are these little four-wheelers, right? And, and when you're on a little four-wheeler and you come to a tree that's in your way or maybe a log that's fallen down, you have to go around it. You have to turn or maybe you come to a, a big mound of dirt or something like You go around it, Right? And so all of a sudden you have all these twists and these turns winding through the woods. But this year, we went down there, they had paid a company to come onto the property and, and cruise timber and clear timber, right? To cut and remove hundreds and hundreds of trees from their property. And it totally changed the property. Because you see, to do this work, these huge machines and this big equipment and all these trucks have to be able to get on and off the property, right? And these huge vehicles, they don't go around anything, right? If a tree is in their way, they knock it down. If there's a creek in their way, they bring a bulldozer in and fill the creek in. So they, and they end up building this huge road through the middle of the property so that they can get in and out, removing every single obstacle in the path. You know, John is saying, Jesus is the king, and to deal with him, every obstacle needs to be removed for His entrance into your life. Do you know what the ruts and the ditches and the boulders are that need to be removed to straighten out the crooked roads in your heart? You know, you need to think a little deeper than just saying sin. You know, yes, sin is the obstacle. Um, See, the reason 
your favorite, your favorite sins and my favorite sins, the reason they cut such deep ruts in our lives, and I'm talking about ruts so deep that sometimes you say, oh, all I wish is that I could climb out of this rut and, and find a new way of living. But I keep sliding back into the same old ruts. The reason for that is that something other than Jesus has become your functional king in your life, your functional master and savior in your life. See, if the approval of others or finding a spouse one day or succeeding in your career or being able to control others, you know, or having a model family or achieving a life of comfort and security or gaining a good reputation, if that's what's most important to you, how you define your life's value and significance, your worth, your identity, that cuts deep ruts in your life that are full of twists and turns in an effort to try and get those things. See, we often look at our lives and we see the sin, right? The lust, the greed, the covetousness, the lies and the anger. It, and that is sin. I'm not saying that it's not. But, but you have to think through it a little deeper. And if you do, you can trace those ruts back to the real source, a functional king or savior in your life. The lies and the dishonesty, because you have to protect your reputation, because that's what's most important to you. The bitterness and the anger over the disappointments of your spouse, who you thought was going to make you whole in this life. You thought that's what they were supposed to do. The greed and the covetousness that shows up because your identity is all bound up in getting ahead and achieving. What does it mean to prepare for Jesus? It means every other king in your life has to be dethroned to make straight paths and prepare the way for the Lord. Okay, let's move quickly to the second thing. We have to, that we ha- the second thing that we have to do to deal with Jesus is to turn to him. To turn to Jesus. You know, the word repentance, it shows up a couple of times in this passage, and it's key. It shows up in verse 3, and then it shows up in verse 8. And for some of you, you hear this word repentance. And it it may be a new one for some of you, but it simply means to turn. That's what the word means. But most of us hear repentance, and we think, okay, I, I know what that means. That means I have to turn away from doing bad things and turn to doing good things. If that's not what you thought, I'll just tell you that's what I thought forever. (laughs) I thought that for a long time. And that's still probably my default way of trying to think about repentance in a moment. But that can't be what it means here. You see, John says in verse 8, he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And actually, verses 10 through 14, they're a description of that fruit, right? Things like generosity and honesty and treating other people fairly and contentment. That's the fruit of it. John is very clear. Those things are not repentance. They are a product. They're a result. They're a fruit of repentance. But repentance is more fundamental than that. It goes much deeper than that. It's a turn, but it's not a turn in behavior. It's a turn of your heart. Real simply, and this is why the first point was really so important. We spent so much time on it. Repentance is turning away from your functional kings and your functional saviors in this life and turning to the King, the Savior, Jesus. Right? You've been looking for your value and your worth and your significance and so on in lesser kings that can never deliver on their promises. Romance, your career, the approval of others. Do you realize how fragile 
Those things are for holding your identity and your worth. It's like playing Jenga. You remember that game, Jenga? (laughs) It's like playing Jenga with your life. Because you pull out one block, right? Get laid off at a job, passed over for a promotion, betrayed, rejected, whatever, and the whole thing comes crashing down on itself. And listen, because repentance is so fundamental, is this fundamental? This is why John is preaching repentance. Not just to the unrighteous, but he's also preaching it to the righteous. I mean, can you imagine this scene, right? A crowd has come out and followed John into the wilderness. They show up and they say, here we are, John, we're ready. We're ready to follow, we're ready to be baptized, we're ready to do whatever. We've come out into the wilderness with you. And the first thing John says to this very eager group is, you brood of vipers. Right? How how to win friends and influence people by John the Baptist. He doesn't even give them a chance to appeal to their righteousness. Verse 8, the middle of it. And do not begin to say to yourselves, he says, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. See, I'm telling you, you've got to go deeper to deal with Jesus because it's not so much what you do as it is why you do it. Because your functional kings in this life can also produce good things in your life, right? I don't, I'm a fan of the air quotes today for some reason. You know, here's how this works. Because you can be moral and good in this life, all in an effort to gain superiority and power over other people. You can be giving and sacrificial to prove your significance in this life, right? Subtle strings attached to that money of yours. You can be religious and you can try and put God in your debt and make him bless you because of how much you've done for him. Your life is still as fragile as a game of Jenga because it is built on your entirely shaky performance. During the time of the Revolutionary War, there was a man named Jonathan Meggs. And this man, Meggs, he courted a young woman um, that he wanted to marry. And when he proposed to her, she rejected him. And he he was crushed, right? And he went away resolved that he would never marry, never court again. He was going to die a bachelor. And then years later, eventually this woman changed her mind And she sent him a letter that just had two words in it, right? A Revolutionary War text message. Um, And he said that the letter had these words in it. It just said, return, Megs. And when he got it, he said that those were the most wonderful, welcome words he had ever heard in his life. And so he, he went back and he married that woman and eventually... They had a baby together. They had a baby boy. And they named that baby boy after those most wonderful welcome words he had ever heard in his life. He, they named their child Return Megs so that every time he called his, name, his son's name, he would be taken back to those words. In fact, this name became so important in this family. You can Google all this. Um, it became so important to this family that in every generation since, there has been a a boy named Return Megs. 
Now, why, why do I tell that story here? I, I think it's because most of us, we hear the word repentance. We hear turn to Jesus. We hear return to the King. And you feel guilty. I mean, you feel so guilty. You feel so full of shame. You feel so afraid. But you need to see that this word repentance, this word turn, this word return, it's not a harsh word to you. You and I, we need to see it as a wonderful, welcome word to us. All your other functional kings in your life, they can never give you grace. They shout at you. They demand from you. They say harder and harder, right? Perform, work, sweat, toil. Don't fail. Don't falter. Don't drop the ball. But this king, Jesus, he says, come to me. Turn and find grace because it's not your performance that matters, but mine. I mean, he's saying, I am the king who has come willing to live and to die in your place. Return. Repent. Jesus is the only king who will ever satisfy you. And he's the only king that if you miss him, will forgive you. Okay, third, to deal with Jesus rightly means that you have to follow him. And this, I do want you to understand this. We're going through a progression here. You can't just skip ahead to this point. It's only after you turn and find grace that you are ready to hear verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Following Jesus, obeying Jesus, it is a result of a turn in your heart. It isn't repentance itself. I know there's a better current illustration of this, so I apologize for this being so outdated. But years ago, I I caught this little segment on the news um, about the Queen of England's visit uh, to the United States. And when she came, one of the things that she planned to do was she planned to go to the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs in Kentucky. And and this segment that I caught on the news was about what a big deal it was, you know. And so they're talking about all these extravagant meals and these accommodations that were made for her. But to me, the real interesting part was that they took the entire staff at Churchill Downs and they gave them etiquette classes, classes in royal etiquette, right? And, And so they learned things like, when the queen enters a room, everyone is required to stand to their feet, right? It, don't introduce yourself to the queen. You have to wait to be introduced to the queen. You never initiate physical contact with the queen like a handshake or something like that. You have to refer to her as your majesty and other nobility like her, uh, lower nobility like her husband. You have to refer to him as your highness, right? So they learned all these things. You learned that the queen always steers the conversation, right? If she's done talking about a subject... It's over, right? They learn that when she stops eating, it doesn't matter if you're still hungry, everybody in the room is done, okay? And on and on it went. But here's the point. The queen is royalty, right? She's not going to adapt to your customs. You're going to adapt to hers is what they were saying. And Jesus, he is not going to adapt to your roads and the paths in your heart. You are going to adapt to his road. He's the king. See, so often we think about obedience and following Jesus as simply rules, 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 rules. But what it means to follow and obey Jesus is really this. To let go of the claim you have on your life. He is the king and you have to adjust to him. Why is this important? Because I think oftentimes, very subtly, this is what slips into our lives. Jesus 
I'll obey you if, right? I'll follow you if my life goes well. If I get the promotion I desperately want, if you fix my spouse and you straighten out my kids, I'll follow you only if it makes sense to me in this moment. And if and only if it lines up with my my agenda that I have for my life. Very subtly, we start trying to get Jesus to follow the ruts in our hearts, the roads in our lives to our functional kings and saviors. You know, what I'm saying, instead of really submitting to Jesus, we start trying to use Jesus to get to our real kings, the things we really want in this life. Let me tell you where this shows up in my life. This shows up in my prayer life first. Because when my prayers become a laundry list of all the things I really, really want in life, and I'm really saying, Jesus, adjust to my plans, my desires, my agenda. And if you do that, I'll be happy and content. And when prayer becomes less about being with Jesus and adjusting to him and more about trying to get Jesus to follow the ruts in our lives. And here's a simple application of this. To follow Jesus means you have to take your hands off of your life and let him be the king. That's who he is. It's real interesting to me in this passage that we read that the tax collectors and the soldiers come to Jesus, right? These, I'm not going to go into the whole thing here, but these were not well thought of people in this culture, okay? They were known extortionists, thieves and cheats and liars. And I just find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't say, tax collectors, you should now become missionaries. You know, change vocations. Soldiers, you should stop extorting people and get involved in full-time mercy ministry. That seems like the opposite. But what John is really saying is he's saying, let Jesus be the king, and it's going to totally change your life no matter what you do in this life. Having turned to a king full of grace, is it making you, you just look at this passage, is it making you more gracious to others? Is it making you more honest? Is it making you more humble, more patient, more kind? I'm asking you this question. Having turned to Jesus, is it lessening the grip you have on your life? And do you find your grip tightening upon Jesus? Okay, finally, last point, rest in Jesus. Prepare for him, turn to him, follow him. But the the proper way to deal with Jesus is also to find rest in him. Right? There's a significant tone of judgment in this passage that you heard, right? Brood of vipers, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire, right? A tree without good fruit is a tree that has never turned to Jesus, John is saying. It's going to be thrown into the fire. And then this stuff about Jesus coming with his winnowing fork in his hand to clear the the threshing floor, verse 17, and to gather the wheat into his barn, but, but he's going to burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. This is my favorite one, because right after it says that, immediately after it says that, it says this, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. (laughs) Like, good news? I mean, you thought my sermons were hard. Um, That's rough. I want you to see this from maybe another angle. Here's the good news that John is talking about. Every single one of us is lost. Righteous or unrighteous, doing good things, doing bad things. Not one of us here today can say, not me. 
Look at my resume. Look at my pedigree, right? Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father because God can take these stones and raise up children for himself. And here's what else this means. It also means that if your resume is full with black marks, if you've got a rap sheet that goes on and on and on, and you're from the wrong side of the tracks, John is saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been in this life. It doesn't matter what you've done. This king, you deal with this king by his grace. See, he is saying, if you've blown it in life or if you've got straight A's in life, it doesn't matter. Every one of us is invited to turn to the one true king, the one true savior, Jesus, who can deliver. John is saying, go and find rest in Jesus. All the way back at the beginning of the chapter, right? that list of names that's really hard to pronounce that I probably botched when I read it, read through it. It's a list of the political leaders and the religious leaders of that day, current to the people in this passage. We can't get into all, all the detail, but these names are meant to signal you to the fact that the outlook was entirely bleak. Right? This was a period of misery. This was a period of oppression. This was a period of corruption. That's what those names mean. And the people were hungry for deliverance. They were hungry. For, they were ripe for change, for revolution, for redemption. And John shows up and he says, the real king is here. The king you have been longing for all your life has come. Did you hear the certainty of that promise when he quoted Isaiah, right? Every valley will be, made, will be filled in and every mountain will be made low. The crooked roads will become straight. All mankind will see God's salvation. I've got to finish here. You won't, you won't trust, repent, or follow perfectly in your life. But Jesus will be the perfect king. So you're going to have to rest in him. You're going to have to let go of your performance and your claim on your life and rest in his grace. And when you look into your heart and you see the bleakness, the darkness, right? So full of crooked paths. You're going to have to rest and know that he won't stop until every mountain has been brought low and every valley has been filled in. Here's what, don't you dare say, not my life. God can't work in my life. He won't work in my life. He's the king of kings, and this is what he does. He brings down mountains, and he fills in valleys, and one day, someday, he's going to come back, and he's going to mend every hurt in your life. He's going to dry up all your tears. He's going to heal every pain. He's going to make all things new. So what should you do? You should prepare for him. You should turn to him. You should follow him and find rest in him. Let's pray together. God, we come before you confessing that our hearts indeed are full of crooked paths. There are ruts deeply ingrained in our hearts that need to be removed. We have chased after other 
things in this life, other kings, other lords, other saviors that we thought would make make us whole if we could just attain to them. Father, they become cruel taskmasters in our lives. Help us, O Father, to turn from those things and to turn to Jesus, the true King. Help us find mercy. Help us find grace. Help us find wonderful welcome words in repentance, in coming to Jesus, in finding forgiveness. Father, when we pray that this would produce fruit in our lives that's in keeping with that repentance, that our lives would indeed, indeed adjust to you, that we would follow your road instead of trying to get you to follow our roads. And Father, we pray that in doing so, we would find rest. We would find wonderful rest in you, the God of grace, the God of redemption, the God of deliverance. We would find grace in the one who is coming back to bring every mountain down and fill every valley. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.